Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Um, I have a great presentation for you today on uh, U.S. withdrawal from the INF Treaty and the implications for the Indo-Pacific, and we have a great uh, opening speaker for you. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton uh, will be joining us in a moment uh, to give some thoughts on the U.S. withdrawal from the INF Treaty. Senator Cotton, um, elected in 2015, has been a an emerging leader on, on national security and military issues for many years now. Uh, he serves on the Senate Armed Services Committee as well as the Select Committee on Intelligence, and he is the chair of the Senate Armed Services Subcommittee on Airland. Uh, before that, he served for many years uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan as a combat infantry, including as a platoon leader with the 101st Airborne. And since joining the Senate, Senator Cotton has repeatedly drawn attention to Russian violations of the INF Treaty, and China's stockpiling of intermediate-range missiles. And he warned a long time ago that if this treaty was to be saved, something would have to give, something would have to be done. And he wasn't bluffing. America must not allow our authoritarian rivals to build and deploy dangerous, destabilizing weapons while we keep one hand tied behind our back, he claimed a few years ago. With that, I'd like to turn the floor over to Senator Cotton, and I hope you all can extend a warm welcome to him. Senator Cotton. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff, for that kind introduction. It's good to be back at the Heritage Foundation to speak today about the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or I should say the former INF Treaty. I had to grin last week when Vladimir Putin officially suspended Russia's obligations under the INF Treaty, since Russia hasn't complied with the treaty for more than a decade. Say what you will about Vladimir Putin, he has perfected the art of gaslighting the West. Moscow long ago developed land-based intermediate-range missiles that can strike all of Europe. And the title of this forum, the Indo-Pacific, after the INF, rightly suggests that China is of equal concern. Beijing has stockpiled thousands of missiles that can target our allies, our bases, our ships, and our citizens throughout the Pacific. Yet we don't have the weapons to match either threat. Because for 10 years, we've been the only nation on Earth that has constrained itself from producing medium-range land-based missiles. But not anymore. The United States has suspended our compliance with the INF Treaty and will withdraw from it later this summer. We announced this policy with the full support of our NATO allies, due in no small part to Russia's repeated and flagrant violations 
but withdrawing from this outdated treaty is only a first step. Now, we must rapidly develop the weapons necessary to overcome the strategic imbalance that's emerged between us and our rivals, China and Russia. Let's remember how we got to this alarming moment and see what we can learn from it. In the mid-1970s, Russia threatened Europe by deploying medium-range missiles that could reach London, Berlin, and Paris, but not the United States. The old communists thought they could bolster their position in Europe and divide NATO, and they did for a while, ignoring high-minded petitions for peace. Soon enough, though, Western actions spoke clearly. NATO made the dual-track decision in 1979, calling for arms control negotiations, but simultaneously deploying our own medium-range missiles to change the strategic balance of power in Europe. No amount of KGB disinformation or covert funding for anti-war protesters in the West could change the new hard facts for the Kremlin. NATO had called its bluff, and hundreds of missiles were now minutes away from Moscow, all while the United States was held harmless. So the Russians sued for peace, and the result was the INF Treaty, which committed both nations to eliminate land-based missiles with ranges between 500 and 5,500 kilometers. This happened not because of the hosannas from the High Church of Arms Control, but rather because we outgunned our enemy, Russia. But today, it's the United States that is outranged and outgunned in Europe, as the Army Chief of Staff, General Mark Milley, puts it. While Putin's Russia spends a fraction of what the Soviet Union once did on its military, it compensates with a heavier reliance on missiles. We first discovered that the Russians were violating the INF Treaty in 2008. Yet, we sat on our hands until 2014, when the State Department finally declared that Russia was, in fact, violating the treaty. Unsurprisingly, given this history, high-minded appeals to Russia went nowhere. Now, according to media reports, Russia has developed four battalions of road-mobile intermediate-range missiles, with more surely to come. China has also benefited from a quasi-theological devotion to the INF Treaty, because China was never bound by it in the first place. When the treaty was signed, China's military in general, and its rocket force in particular, were not significant threats to the United States. But today, China has the arsenal to match its hegemonic ambitions. China's defense budget grew by an average of 10% a year from 2000 to 2016. And a crown jewel of the People's Liberation Army is its arsenal of ballistic and cruise missiles. China aims to dominate the region and prevent our military from operating in the Western Pacific, the Indian Ocean, and the South China Sea. To achieve these aims, the PLA has deployed thousands of ground-based missiles capable of ranging U.S. bases and forces throughout the region, many in a matter of minutes. Most of these missiles are deployed on the Chinese mainland within striking distance of our allies, particularly Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea. Other missiles are deployed on China's, island, China's artificial island military bases in the South China Sea. And just as in Europe today, we have no comparable ground-launched missiles. We are, to again quote General Milley, outranged and outgunned. 
While some argue that we can counter Chinese power with missiles launched from ships, submarines, and bombers, those air and sea-based platforms are more expensive to operate than ground-based missiles, can't carry as many missiles, and they put more Americans in harm's way. This imbalance of military power poses grave strategic challenges for the United States. Admiral Harry Harris, the former combatant commander of the Pacific Command and now our ambassador to South Korea, testified last year that the INF Treaty has put our Navy at a disadvantage in the Western Pacific. He added the plain truth. We have no ground-based capability that can threaten China. If the conventional military balance continues to shift against us in the Indo-Pacific, the United States may find itself unable to credibly uphold its military commitments in the region. That's why it's imperative that we seize the opportunity provided by our imminent withdrawal from the INF and regain the upper hand over our rivals. Yet despite these grave strategic considerations and the support of our NATO allies, critics of the decision to withdraw from the INF remain. Some House Democrats have recently introduced legislation that would lock the United States into the treaty by itself since the only other party of the treaty has violated it for a decade. The bill is sponsored by representatives Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Barbara Lee, Mark Pocan, Jim McGovern, and Raul Grijalva. Boy, that list is a doozy. Apparently, they are fine with prohibiting the United States from building a weapon that literally every other nation on earth can build. Others would argue that we should at least recommit to the INF Treaty and give diplomacy a chance, as they put it, as though Russia will undergo a dramatic change of heart if we just say pretty please this time around. That was certainly the last administration strategy. Yet all their imploring and communiques and demarches led to the predicament we face now. Just the same hot air got the West nowhere in the 1970s. Russia understands one thing, iron will and brute force. Only when the costs we impose on their missile deployments exceed the benefits they perceive will Russia stand down. The same goes for China. And for all those who claim that instead of exiting the treaty, the United States should try to bring China into the treaty. This is an even more fantastic idea than the first. As I mentioned, a full 95% of China's ground-based missiles would be banned by the INF Treaty. The PLA has devoted 30 years to building this vast arsenal. They're not going to dismantle a centerpiece of their strategic doctrine just because we ask nicely. As with Russia, China will only change its ways when we impose sufficiently high costs, which we can do easily enough. Remember, China, like Russia, is vulnerable to our deployed medium-range missiles, but we are not vulnerable to theirs. So now's the time to reclaim the strategic advantage in the Indo-Pacific. Our first step is pretty simple. Quickly close the technology gap between us and the Chinese. In the short term, we ought to study how to match our existing missiles with mobile ground launchers. For instance, we could develop in fairly short order a land-based cruise missile, probably modeled on our current sea-based missiles. In the medium term, we ought to produce new mobile ground-launched cruise missiles. Our forces don't have to mirror Chinese capabilities, but we ought to give our defense planners more tools 
and our rivals, defense planners, more things to worry about. And they'll worry a lot more about mobile missiles than fixed launchers, which are easier to target and to take out. We also must determine where in the Indo-Pacific region to base conventional INF range missiles. Guam is probably the immediate answer for an initial basing site, but it won't be enough for a long-term strategy. So we will also need to consult our allies about deploying medium-range missiles onto their territory as part of a serious plan to counter China. Such deployments, though controversial to some, have great potential to enhance our network of allies and partners in the region. None of China's allies are blind to its ambitions, and no country of any consequence in the region prefers to be a vassal state to Beijing as opposed to an American military partner. Our withdrawal from the INF Treaty and development of a new medium-range missile will present us with new opportunities to engage those neighbors with arms sales, training exercises, and weapons co-development programs. The INF Treaty was a creature of its time when the world had split between superpowers. Russia was the only real threat we faced back then. Today, much as we might still focus on Europe, there's a gathering threat in the Far East, and the conventional balance of power is tilting slowly away from the United States. For too long, our government stood paralyzed while American power eroded. But in just a few months, that all stops. We'll have an opportunity to seize the strategic initiative once again. If we do, we can remind a revanchist Russia why it signed the INF Treaty in the first place. Likewise, we can show Beijing that its bid for dominance in the Western Pacific won't go unchallenged. The task before us may be daunting, but events seem no less daunting in the late 70s and early 80s. Back then, Cold War tensions seemed only to ratchet upward, and the demise of the evil empire seemed like an impossible or at least a far-off prospect. Ronald Reagan's bold action to build America's military strength preserved the peace back then. We must be prepared to take such bold action today. Thank you. Senator Cotton, thank you not only for uh, coming to present at this conference, but for offering such robust and, and compelling presentation. You've certainly given our panelists some food for thought and things to chew on. Um, <clears throat> the senator has graciously agreed to take uh, two or three easy questions. questions. <laughs> easy questions. <laughs> direct uh, questions, relevant questions from the audience. And so, um, Angel, if, if we could get to one here. Okay. Hi. Uh, Miles Pomper from the Center for Nonproliferation Studies. Thank you, Senator. Uh, you mentioned uh, the need to find places to base weapons in the Indo-Pacific what about in Europe? I mean, it seems to be more of a challenge to find a place to base the weapons there. Well, we do need to find places to base them that can range Russia, especially its western military district. Um, I deferred on that in part because this is a forum about the Indo-Pacific. I suspect with some good diplomacy, often conducted behind the scenes, that we will find European nations once again that are willing to host our missile forces, in part because they know that it will bolster, bolster their own deterrent and also make Russia less likely to attack their own soil. This will be a replay of the debate that we saw in the 1980s that led 
to millions of people protesting in New York and European capitals, in many cases funded by the KGB and infiltrated by Russian spies. But in the end, I'm confident that we will find reliable NATO allies who are eager to host new American missile forces. Thanks, Senator. Michael Smith, Washington Free Beacon. Um, do you anticipate any pushback from either the defense or technology sectors with respect to the shift into a new weapons space, um, whether whether political or internal from the rank and file? Uh, I, I don't. Um, obviously, we have a lot of companies that already are part of our missile production lines. Um, I do think that we could pretty quickly shift some of that technology from sea-based platforms to land-based uh, forces, as I mentioned earlier. Um the next step is going to require some more technological development, but as long as they know that um, the Congress is committed to funding this, which will be a big part of what we can do over the next two years, um, I think that they're going to be willing to look into those opportunities. Um, I just don't think it is politically feasible for our country to be the only country on earth that doesn't build these weapons, in particular at a time when our two main near-peer competitors, Russia and China, are not only developing them, but deploying them on a mass scale. I understand that there's some opposition on the left from it, as I mentioned in my remarks. Um, but in the end, there was opposition to the left on it in the 1980s, and you saw what happened. Uh, last one here. Yeah, hi. Uh, thank you. Uh, Mike's Howard. coming. Great. Howard LaFranchi with the Christian Science Monitor. Um, President Trump has spoken of uh, getting to a big, beautiful new treaty that would include China. You addressed this um, uh, somewhat in your presentation, but uh, I'm wondering if your thought is that uh, one <coughs> end goal of, of a buildup would be to get to where adversaries would be wanting to come into some sort of treaty. Well, I wouldn't talk about adversaries in the abstract because really we're only talking here about China and Russia that have de developed these missiles on this scale. So it's important that we think about them concretely, not just in the abstract. I, I would say that it's highly unlikely that China would be interested in joining anything like the INF Treaty for the reasons I laid out. They've had a very deliberate strategy for 28 years now since the first Gulf War to develop these rocket forces. Um, however, um, the INF Treaty is not the only arms control treaty that will be under consideration soon. The New START Treaty uh, will be up for reconsideration in a couple years. And a very simple principle of the New START deliberation should be no New START extension without China. We have a lot of arms control legacy agreements that focus just on the United States and Russia because those were the two superpowers in the Cold War, much like the INF Treaty. Much like the New START Treaty was an echo of that eight years ago. Um, but it makes no sense at all for us to continue bilateral arms control agreements with Russia while China continues to build out its nuclear forces with more diverse weapon systems of different types on which we have very little handle. Um, in the world that is emerging, any arms control agreement to include New START should not even be up for discussion unless it includes not only Russia but China as well. That was great. Please uh, join me in thanking Senator. Thank you all. That was great. I think our work here is done, John. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Um, I am excited to be here today. 
because I'm going to, along with all of you, be learning a lot. Uh, I, I do cover the Indo-Pacific here for heritage, but I'm probably uniquely unqualified to talk about the INF Treaty. This is not an area I've focused on, so I'm going. I'm here to learn. And while I don't know much about the topic, I know two uh, exceptionally well-qualified candidates who do. Um, to my far left, we have uh, Eric Sayers, who's currently a, an adjunct fellow at CNAS. Uh, previously, he served a stint at PACOM, now Indo-PACOM, as an advisor to Admiral Harry Harris. Uh, he's also done work on the Senate Armed Services Committee, served as a policy advisor to Representative Randy Forbes, Pacific Forum CSIS, and last but not least was a research assistant here at the Heritage Foundation in a previous life. Most important. Yes, most important. Uh, to my uh, immediate left, we have Bridge Colby who is currently the director of the defense program at CNAS. Uh, he recently served as uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development from 2017 to 2018, where he played a major role in the 2018 National Defense Strategy and the 2017 National Security Strategy. This point was made last night, but I think it's worth restating here. There are a lot of policy documents and acronyms thrown around Washington, D.C., I think it is it is hard to overstate how expansive and consequential these two documents in particular are for uh, U.S. foreign policy and national security. And I think the praise that both of these documents have received from many corners of Washington is a is a testament to the hard work that was done uh, in in those last few years. So much credit to you for that. Uh, before that, he was the Robert M. Gates Senior Fellow at Center for New American Security. Uh, and also served as an analyst at Center for Naval Analysis and in the DOD State Department and Intelligence Community. Uh, to keep this very brief, uh, to date, I think much of the discussion around the INF Treaty and the U.S. withdrawal has, perhaps understandably, focused on Russia and transatlantic relations and, and the impact there. And there has been comparatively less time devoted to the implications for U.S. strategy in the, in the Indo-Pacific, for China, and for how those in the region are perceiving this change. And uh, I think we have a great panel here. I think we had a great kickoff uh, presentation by Senator Cotton and put a lot of ideas on the table. So uh, with that, Eric, why don't you get us started? Great. Thanks, Jeff. Um, thanks to, to Heritage for hosting and, and to Senator Cotton for, for gracing us and, and giving that great speech. Um, it's always good to be back at the Heritage Foundation, as Jeff said. This is where I got my start, so I'm never, ever indebted to Heritage, but it's also where I met my wife when we were both working here, so perhaps I even more indebted to, to Heritage and what it's done for me. Um, so this is a great topic because it's one of those in Washington which hasn't got a lot of attention because this treaty, even though global in nature, uh, is 99% of what has been written and talked about the last 10 years is about Europe and kind of in the arms control world. Uh, Asia security scholars, like I, like myself, like I like to think of myself, um, haven't really considered this and haven't discussed it until the last three or four years. Uh, and, and that's to understand that and the, the irony of that really, you have to look back to 1986, 87 when the negotiations were finalizing and when Russia was pushing for the treaty to be localized to the European theater. It was actually, again, ironically, uh, the Japanese prime minister at the time, Nakasone, uh, that weighed in through a series of, of letters Interesting back then that presidents and prime ministers exchanged letters with each other and, and phone calls. Uh, that Japan said to, to Ronald Reagan, 
Uh, don't let Europe's problem become Asia's problem. Don't let this treaty limit uh, the, the, the deployment of intermediate-range nuclear weapons in the European theater by just moving them to the Far East and threatening Japan and the alliance. And Nakasone's point at the time was, you know, what's best for Europe also needs to be what's best for Asia. And at that time, that was very important. Uh, it was important from a Europe context and a Japan context, and that was representative of the bipolar world we, we found ourselves in. Um, flash forward to, to where we find ourselves the last 10 years, and especially the last four or five years, and what's led to this national defense strategy that Bridge had a major hand in, in writing. You know, we, we find a, an operational dilemma uh, where China, because of their geography, um, can, can threaten the, the limited number of air bases and naval platforms the U.S. can deploy uh, in the Pacific. Um, this has created challenges for strategic stability. Um, the concern is, we can get into this later on a little bit more, uh, that a China military and, and, and party may conclude in the future that, you know, we can win, China could win a quick, sharp war by just targeting the limited number of places the U.S. can generate combat power from. Um, this is largely a result of, of this treaty. Um, and the biggest point here, and we should start with this, is, you know, this, this treaty limits, of course, cruise and ballistic missiles of an intermediate range, but it doesn't matter what the payload is. It can be nuclear or conventional. Uh, and the conversation, you know, as it's turned the last couple of years is, is to the conventional and the, and the capacity that that may have. When I worked on the Senate Armed Services Committee, you know, I was over at the Joint Staff once and we were laying out all these maps and talking about how the military balance was shifting and what just what was possible given the asymmetry of geography that benefits China, we could do to catch up. Uh, and, and this topic emerged as a conversation in, in the ways that Pacific Command and, and the operational command we have in, the, in Hawaii um, – was limited legally. It was illegal to consider, you know, the same type of conventional missions that deploy on maritime and air assets to put them on the land. Um, so I've argued, you know, pretty extensively the last year or two when I was in government and now out of government that there is utility in, in a ground launch cruise missile, um, for an anti-ship mission and then maybe later on for a land attack mission. And I think, you know, my main points today are just to, to touch on this and we can, we can get to the other pieces and some of the criticisms or counter arguments in the, in the Q and A. Um, again, to, to, to reiterate, and I think this is important because the, the middle initial is N, we need a ground launch cruise missile of a conventional variety. I think this is what's important in the Pacific to offset some of the challenges we have. Um, because of these limited facilities and, and ability to generate fires um, in, in the Pacific, um, that's, that's kind of the first argument for why a ground launch capability could offset air and maritime capabilities we have. The fighters in the Pacific and Kadena or Masawa or Anderson, um, our strike groups, they have limited magazine depth across this, this vast geography. Um, and this creates, you know, just a numbers problem for, for uh, a Pacific command that's living underneath the, the boot of, of, of this treaty. Um, also, a ground launch cruise missile, uh, again, for an anti-ship mission, but also later for a land attack mission. This would free up um, some of these other surface ships and, and, and aviation assets to do other missions. I'd rather have a, a DDG, Arleigh Burke destroyer, deploying that could focus on anti-submarine warfare and other critical missions than just thinking about sea control uh, and, and thinking about uh, the anti-ship mission. Um, mobile systems are, are also survivable, uh, and they complicate planning. Senator Cotton spoke to that. Um, you know, there's been a criticism that, oh, these, you know, this is just a bunch of islands, and you can't have a good INF discussion without a few maps, so we put these up there. Um, and thanks to CSBA for, for allowing me to use these and, and, and Brian Clark over there. Uh, when I was at Pacific Command, you know, we were just talking about the North Koreans and the ability to flush out their road mobile systems and how much the U.S. government would struggle to find and target 
uh, a country like North Korea's capabilities. The U.S. and its, and its you know, vast resources that we could put to bear on this could, could just as equally create this dilemma where PLA planners wake up every morning and they don't just need to count the number of bases in Japan and elsewhere in the region. They need to think about where these mobile systems are on that day. Um, finally, and, and Senator Cotton spoke to this as well, uh, the question is, how do we do this? Um, what does it take? Does it take five or ten years? How much money is it going to cost? The beauty of all this is that there's near-term options. We already have these conventional capabilities in our arsenal. In fact, they're already in Japan. Uh, we have the JASM-ER, long-range, kind of modern, uh, air-launched uh, cruise missile. Uh, we have LORASM, which is a, a maritime variant of the JASM-ER. The, the Navy is looking to purchase the naval strike missile from the Norwegian company Kongsberg. These munitions already exist, as do the launchers. Um, in Japan, not just are these munitions are not just in Japan, but so are the launchers. We have we have HIMARS and other MLRS type launcher systems. So we're not talking about starting a, from scratch with a new, you know, type of capability that's going to take ten years to test and develop and deploy. We're talking about really just the integration of an existing munition where we have hot production lines and existing launchers um, that the Marine and the the Marines or the Army could do in in two or three years is, is the best estimates that I've heard. Um, again. And I wrote about this with a Japanese colleague, and this will be my last point. Uh, last week in War on the Rocks, uh, Sugio Takahashi from NIDS, um, Japan is critical to this. I, know I think that you could base these systems, again, as Senator Cotton said, you could base these systems in the theater, uh, in places like Guam or Alaska that have heavy lift C-17s and C-130s, where you could deploy it forward. Um, but we need, given the, the range of some of these systems, longer range, but still, given the vast geography of Asia, shorter in terms of the, Asia's geography, we, we could deploy them forward to places like Japan in the future. And so the conversation and the success of this really depends, I, I believe, uh, on the U.S.-Japan alliance and its ability to assess military balance from an alliance perspective and work through some of the difficult questions we're going to have to ask over the next three or four years. And I think the alliance has done this before. It's, this isn't that controversial. We, we, we had conventional carriers in Japan until 2008. We put the George Washington and nuclear carrier there, which raised a lot of questions and, and given the history in Japan of nuclear weapons and their use, um, we worked through that problem. The V-22 Osprey and its deployment and its, you know, its safety record as, as many Japanese raised up, we, we worked through that problem as well, as well as missile defenses, which aren't even controversial now, but 10 years ago, lots of questions were raised in Japan about the use of missile defenses. So the alliance has dealt with challenges before in, in these types of systems. I think it's up to alliance managers to consider what this type of capability could mean from an alliance perspective going forward. Thanks. Great. Well, uh, I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, first of all, uh, thanks very much, Jeff, for the, the, the invitation and the very kind introduction. Uh, and, and it's great to be here. Uh, an honor to appear with Senator Cotton, my old teaching fellow back in college, so he's still teaching me. Uh, and, uh, and of course, my, my good friend Eric, uh, who's really helped to drive the conversation on this crucial point. So I'll just, I'll try to kind of lay out some brief, brief comments and then I think we can open it up. I mean, I guess I, you know, I look at the INF issue and there, the way the conversation, if you kind of really made it as sort of simple as, as you could, I experienced this a little bit in the Department of Defense is it's historically been a Europe nuclear conversation and it needs to become an Asia conventional conversation because that's what we're talking about. And that's particularly the case because as the national defense strategy makes very clear from a defense point of view, Asia is the priority and China is the priority challenger. So I think that's kind of the, 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 the bottom line up front. The other thing I just kind of say very, very simply is that when you're, and, and, and many know much more about this than I, but when you're thinking about conventional military conflict and therefore effective conventional deterrence, incremental advantages matter. 
It's not like nuclear stuff where it's kind of an abstract and sort of totalistic balance. So, and I think this will get into some of the issues that Eric was touching on. I think INF was an, a tremendous uh, victory. Uh, I mean, it was a mutual, it was a mutually beneficial, but in many ways, it was an American, real American success story and allied success story uh, of the of the 1980s. But it was also a product of its times. I mean, it's it's unusual that INF was a disarmament treaty and not an arms control treaty. Start one and new started successor that I worked on are arms control treaties. They provide ceilings and then they provide verification and data exchange measures. INF eliminated an entire class of weapons. There's nothing inherently evil about missiles being launched from the ground rather than from the air or the sea. It was simply, that was our negotiating position. Actually, it was initially, I believe it was referred to as a poison pill by Richard Pearl to put out the zero option uh, of no INF systems uh, in, the, in the European theater. And it became uh, a successful approach because fundamentally, I think uh, Mikhail Gorbachev decided that he wanted to change the end of the Cold War and dramatically reduce the military burden on the Soviet economy for reasons, you know, that had a lot to do with President Reagan's buildup and so forth. Um, but that, you know, so it, it was a it was a product of its time, but it was, you know, it was very successful and, and, and laudatory uh, in that uh, in that context. So obviously, as time's gone on, the Russians have at some point decided they are fundamentally alienated from the, the post-Cold War security order, and we don't need to dwell on that at, at length. But they've decided that they don't no longer fit into this treaty. And actually, I believe uh, Secretary Rumsfeld as well as Secretary Gates uh, record that the Russians actually approached them about modifying uh, or, or renegotiating the treaty back about 10 years ago. Um, nothing really came of it. I'm not exactly sure of, 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 of why and uh, not, no culpability there, but it just, it didn't, it didn't really go anywhere. And in some ways, some ways that's actually kind of a re- quite regrettable. But the Russians decided to blow through and violate the treaty willfully and, and brazenly and blatantly. And that's, that's where we are. And I think they probably are doing it for both some nuclear coercive val- uh, leverage, but really from our point of view from NATO defense, it's probably more relevant about conventional forces because uh, Russia already had the capability to conduct significant nuclear strikes into the European theater with existing assets. So they don't really gain anything by nuclear INF systems. But it does give them the ability to strike at distant air bases, uh, you know, A-pods and S-pods, kind of uh, uh, points of debarkation and embarkation for forces that would move forward. And that gets to the basic point, which is that I think the, the threat from Russia from a military point of view that the national defense strategy and other uh, lays out is basically a fait accompli strategy, a very, the Russian ability to move very quickly uh, using their conventional forces probably into the Baltics and eastern Poland uh, and then uh, erode and, and degrade our ability to resupply, to use what, what you know we often call the desert storm model, to build that iron mountain of capability and, and force structure that would be required to eject the Russians from from their new gains, which they then by that point have hardened with their anti-access area denial systems. And then, of course, you get into the escalate to de-escalate problem, which is whatever the Russians say or whatever the Russians want, they have the capability to selectively escalate to the nuclear level in ways that they might hope would terminate the conflict. So that's the basic problem. Conventional INF systems give them some uh, considerable added ability. Now, their magazines are relatively limited because of the limits on their economy. Um, but basically the way we need to solve that, that the national defense strategy is laying out, is saying we need to have an effective blunting force. And this is both for U.S. forces that General Milley has, I think, uh, been leading the charge on uh, and Secretary Esper, as well as our allies, which is that, you know, our, force, our, our posture in Europe is trapped in amber from 1989 for reasons, you know, political reasons, basically, NATO Founding Act, et cetera. And we have not really 
moved our defense, our actual military capability as far forward as our defense perimeter. And that is now what needs to happen. And so what this means is that actually in Europe, my view is that if we were just thinking about the European theater, we would not have needed necessarily to get out of INF. We could have used it as a diplomatic um, uh, uh, sort of hammer to pound the Russians justifiably. They deserve to be pounded for violating the treaty and use as leverage with the, with the Europeans and as goodwill to help uh, uh, deploy forces uh, forward. Because what we need is a better posture, a more resilient posture. We need the Germans to step up and spend more effectively on conventional defense. Uh, the Poles are doing that already to their to their great credit, et cetera. So, so that, that I'm going to return to that in the end and kind of what, what, what we should do. But that's if we were just looking at Europe. But of course, what we're saying is China is growing at, you know, 5% or so a year. And it's, in, it's defense spending has increased. I think that even though it's way, well above their growth rate, they said it's 7.5% this year or ne- this next year is their official statement. So, I mean, we have the world's now probably comparably or in the near future, probably the world's largest economy increasing its defense spending. And it's not def- increasing its defense spending in a 360 degree. It's increasing its defense spending to, to fight the Americans over, over uh, who, who gets to set the rules of the road uh, in the Western Pacific. And I can dwell on that. And basically what the National Defense Strategy and other documents are saying is that's the number one problem. That's what we need to figure out. And what we need is uh, to, along with allies and coalition partners in the region, present an effective forward defense that will not allow the Chinese to uh, move forward and use the plausible theories of victory to seize Taiwan. And then in the future, given the, in the, the growth rate of the PLA, it's going to be the Philippines and possibly parts of Japan, Vietnam, et cetera. So PLA, we have to think, remember, that PLA uh, capability is dynamic. The military balance is dynamic, and they are investing very, very substantially. So that's, that's our number one problem. And, of course, I think as Eric has really led the charge, Admiral Harris and others, uh, the Chinese have an enormous stock of conventional INF systems. And again, really talking about the conventional uh, uh, side in this in this context. Now, we don't need to match symmetrically their ability. The fact that they have a whole bunch of conventional INF systems does not logically mean that we need to have a whole bunch of conventional INF systems. But what we do need to be able to do is um, basically defend against their ability to take over the territory of our allies and partners and hold it. And what their ability to do, our, our posture in the region is highly nodal. It's highly concentrated and it's constrained in the way that Eric has just talked about, which is, yeah, the best thing in the world to have is nuclear uh, powered attack submarines. They are about the best thing you could possibly have. However, they're extremely expensive. They take a long time to build. The industrial base is constrained. And there were decisions back in the 1990s in a much different world that basically led to us going into what is called the submarine bathtub. So, and this gets to the incremental point. We need as many possible munitions as we can possibly get because the Chinese military is extremely large and sophisticated. They are going to be doing deception. They are going to be doing camouflage. They are going to be mobile, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we have, there are plenty of targets to go after, even just dealing in a relatively quite constrained environment. If the Chinese can pound the tar out of the air bases and, and surface ships that Eric is talking about, they can push out the number of munitions that they would have to face. So we need as many munitions at a reasonable cost as possible. And when you fully burden it, a land-based system is really pretty pretty cheap compared to the alternatives. Uh, it's not a silver bullet, but we're not talking about silver bullets in, in, a, in the conventional military balance in Asia. So – indisputably we'd benefit from it. And I think Admiral Harris, and again, Eric's work is, is really important here, has made it very clear. And I, I don't know if Admiral Davidson's actually said anything, but I would imagine it's a similar position because it's 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 very clear when you look at it from a, of a kind of defense uh, a military prism. So the question then becomes, 
you know, where do we put it? My feeling about this is, I think, uh, as, as Jeff and Eric were kind of suggesting, and, and the senator as well, um, look, again, the PLA is growing in military power, and the military balance is dynamic. People have become very accustomed to a Western Pacific that is characterized by American military dominance. What the National Defense Strategy has has, has said is that the American military is no longer dominant, but it can be it can it can maintain the advantage over our political with respect to our political interests alongside greater efforts by our allies and partners, principally Japan, but including a number of others. Um, what that means is if the PLA continues to invest in these military capabilities and the shadow of its military power continues to darken and continues to expand, the political situation will change in all of the countries in Asia. And if it doesn't change, the Americans will face a decision about what, how serious these countries are actually in their self-defense. So this is where good diplomacy and, and these kind of strategy documents can shape the environment and explain, look, things are going to have to change to stay the same. And so that's how I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's worth saying, well, we're, I mean, Miles, your question is a good one, but it's a premature. Right now we develop the capability and we will see where the Chinese go and we will see how the military balance evolves. So what does this mean? I think, I think it's pretty clear we move ahead with development and a lot of this technology is very mature. And I would encourage our allies like Japan to go, go ahead on their own. Uh, uh, you know, full speed ahead. Uh, and we can talk about the specifics of, you know, land attack versus anti-ship and so forth. But from an arms control perspective, look, I think there is a possible arrangement here with the Russians. Now, they have to, they have to uh, uh, satisfy us and the Europeans about the fact that they have blown through uh, an arms control agreement uh, and lied about it. So that's a big, that's a big hurdle. But the Russians are not going to be able to build that many of these systems anyway. So we could have a ceiling with them and then extend new start data exchange and transparency measures to include those. We could have regional arrangements. For instance, we could have probably agree to quite strict regional uh, uh, ceilings on missiles uh, for Europe. But we not, might not want to accept them from, for, for Asia. In fact, the, as, as Eric points out, the Nakasone point is actually inverted. Now the Japanese, I don't know what the government says, but from a strategic perspective, they benefit from this from our getting out of this treaty. So this is, I think, where the conversation will go, and I don't think we should let the Chinese off the hook. Now, of course, the Chinese are not going to want to give up all of these conventional-range INF missiles, but as I was telling a Chinese counterpart at a conference thing the other day, gone are the days when they can get away with, oh, we're just a, you know, we're just a developing state. You know, you know, Xi Jinping and the PLA, we're very impressed. We're very impressed with what they can do, and, we, and, and everybody out in Asia knows it. India knows it. Japan knows it. Frankly, Russia knows it. Vietnam knows it. That's not going to fly anymore. They need to have an arms control. And if they're not willing to have an arms control discussion, that tells you a lot about how serious they are about uh, regional stability. So with that, look forward to your comments. Excellent panel discussion so far. Um, I'm going to cede moderator's privilege for the moment and uh, turn to the audience here. Um, I know we have some questions. Okay. Uh, hi, Bridge. Uh, I had a question in terms of you mentioned potential arms control or possibly – I'm just wondering in terms of like confidence building measures or transparency measures or something to uh, – if you're going to deploy conventional weapons in the Pacific to at least uh, convince people that they are in fact conventional and yeah. uh, to – provide, you know, avoid those kind of dangers. Do you think there's a possibility of that going forward? Actually, yeah, I think that's a great point, Miles. I mean, I, I, from our point of view, commensurate with security, and I don't think it would need to be bilateral. I mean, we might want to think about whether it's bilateral or not, but we would have, we have every interest in saying that 
any INF class systems, and they're both medium range and intermediate range in the technical terminology, uh, would be conventional only. And we would be willing to provide, you know, what are called, um, oh my gosh, exhibitions, right? And, you know, whether they would meet new start verification standards, but maybe they would be open to the press, you know, and maybe they would be open to experts, you know, from a variety of countries. Because we want not, we want everybody to understand, including our allies, that this is, that we're not trying to do a secret sauce with, because look, we, you know, God forbid a nuclear war would ever happen, but but the, when you're talking about the number of weapons that would need to be involved and the types of distances and so forth, it's a much different story. And we have plenty of ways of delivering nuclear munitions against the Russians or the or the Chinese. It's it's not that incremental world anymore, uh, as you know. So I think, um, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure they'd yeah they'd be kind of confidence building. It'd be more like we have a strategic advantage in everybody understanding that these are not nuclear. So we also have a strategic advantage in making that credible. And has the Chinese government um, offered any official reaction to the withdrawal? Well, unfortunately, we should have brought it up, but but to her credit, Angela Merkel did raise the issue of China joining just a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, the Munich conference. Um, something that we've, in Pacific Command and others, always argued would be a great way to to expose and discuss exactly the number of munitions that the Chinese have. Which it's not just ninety five percent; that's a great figure, but it's actually sixteen hundred intermediate range conventional weapons, largely conventional weapons. Um, of course, there was a number of Global Times op-eds and, and others and, and official responses from, from the, the state ministry that, that that's just not the case and, we, you know, we're not going to consider that and the U.S. should stop sort of raising this issue and being provocative. But it certainly came up in the last three weeks. Well, so it's actually better that Angela Merkel raised it given all the flack that we're in with the Germans. But right. I think it's uh, – it's, um, that actually, you know, just makes me think that actually the ceilings are even more because the disarmament thing. I think there's automatically a sense of well, obviously the Chinese aren't going to do that. But if we came up with a, a, an actual ceiling figure, that would put a lot more pressure on them. Yeah, certainly would. And that's and that's the question here. The term arms race gets thrown around a lot. You know, we're only one side is raising. Well, only one side's <laughs> raising. It's sixteen hundred to yeah. zero. Um, and I, I quibble with with Senator Cotton a little bit on the point that and and, and Bridge got into this. We're, I think we're both arguing for this in the context of what it means for U.S. conventional capabilities and the military balance, not because China has them. Even if China didn't invest heavily in a rocket force and was more air and maritime based, this is just something given the geography that gives us this advantage. I was at Pacific Command and we were having an unclassified discussion a few weeks ago and they were just talking about the sheer number, you know, the, the China's missile force, its rocket force is the largest, fastest and most advanced you know, missile force in the world. Like to Bridge's point, the Chinese have arrived in this space. We are far behind. You know, we focus too much on platforms and, and less on on the payloads and munitions. And so, this is a way that we can invest in the near term. It's really a competitive strategy. Um, you know, we're 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 unlikely to get an eight hundred, nine hundred billion dollar defense budget where we can just buy these problems away. We're not going to get a three hundred fifty five ship navy and find more ports in Japan where we can deploy these these capabilities to. If we're going to address this growing military gap, operational gap and dilemma in the next five years, to me, this is the best kind of competitive strategy approach to do that. Just sort of watching this on, <laughs> watching this <laughs> discussion on the margins, one of the recurring points of criticism I, I've heard or questions raised is, and you've already addressed it, Bridge, is, is who's going to be willing to host these assets. And uh, I guess from a layman's perspective, my question is, how would hosting conventional missiles make uh, some of these countries more vulnerable or greater targets than hosting U.S. military bases or naval assets? How is, there, how, how is it different? 
You tell me. I, I, I've, I've been, I've, I've been, uh, I found that it was a, kind of a, a somersault you have to make to get to that point. Um, we have these air bases and naval bases across Japan. Japan understands that it's been kind of the shield in this, in this alliance for the past 75 years. Um, that's just a part of doing business, a part of alliance yeah. it, challenges. Um, we made the point that these munitions and launchers are already in Japan. I failed to make the point that Japan already has these types of capabilities. They have their own. Although shorter range, 200 kilometers or 150 kilometers, uh, ground launch cruise missiles. So it's a, it's a, it's a system that they've seen an advantage in and already invested in. We could certainly help them go further and have a, a further range, but I don't understand what the, what the political challenge is of, of a conventional cruise missile that goes 300 kilometers and one that goes 700 kilometers or 501 kilometers for that. Well, I think, I mean, I think, no, Eric's exactly right. I just, I mean, I think there's, it's kind of the interrelationship between kind of political reality and 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 military requirements and balances and so forth. And and I mean, I think in um, in Asia, everybody's gotten very accustomed to sort of deals that often implicitly reflected American, you know, dom- absolute dominance over the over the maritime environment. Basically, anything that you, you know, if you look at the Rand Scorecard report a couple years ago, which is superb, it, it showed. You know, the, the ratio of kills over, say, the Taiwan Straits. I mean, the Americans could sustain combat air patrols over the Taiwan Straits in 1999, with essentially, essentially without hitting the mainland, because anything that, that I think got into the air would be shot down. By 2017, basically can barely, I mean, I'm not even sure how much, and I'm just going off what Rand is saying, but how much air power could actually even get into the Taiwan Strait, let alone sustain combat air patrols in the face of, of Chinese resistance. So, you know, we need to think about it's kind of like this shaded, you know, sort of region of, of, of military power that the Chinese are deliberately, very deliberately buying. I mean, I get, again, this arms race thing is a great, is a great point. It's like, you know, they're not building military power. They're not building a huge land army because they're terrified that, that anybody could invade all around their periphery. They are building a military specifically designed to project, first deny the Americans the ability to project power and then increasingly project military power of, of their own through, th- and then to shadow the decision-making of the regional states, I mean, as you know well, like Vietnam, like Philippines, Thailand, Malaysia, Australia, ultimately in Japan and Korea. And then basically, you know, they won't have, none of those states alone or even in, 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 junction, in conjunction could stand up to Chinese military power, economic power. So it has to be the United, the United States. And so I think what they're, what the Chinese are trying to do, for instance, in the South China Sea is basically shadow the decision-making of these states to not allow this kind of basing access. So this is why, I mean, this is why the Euro missile controversy was so important. It was because it, it was, it was in, it illuminating about how far the Europeans were willing to go for their own defense. And we don't want to go as far as the Euro missiles. And we're not talking about nuclear hmm. systems, unlike the Pershing twos and the Glickums. Uh, these are conventional systems specifically de- designed for alliance and partner defense. So I think, you know, my sense is we can make this argument. Um, you know, if you're Japan, for, I mean, we've been harassing the Japanese since the 1950s to do more for their own defense. You know, there's a narrative of demilitarization, but we actually regretted MacArthur's decision. I don't know exactly, but it was, yeah. I mean, really, really early. But then the Japanese said, well, actually, we kind of like this arrangement. This is very nice. We're not going to have a military and we get to get, you know, become incredibly rich and, and move to the forefront. You know, and it was different with Germany. Germany was not demilitarized. The, the Bundeswehr was stood back up. They became a NATO ally in 55. And the Bundeswehr was the most capable European military uh, uh, in, in, in NATO uh, throughout the Cold War. We're probably going to need to have a, a switch a little bit. I mean, the Germans need to do more, but the Japanese are going to need to resemble more that mentality, which is adapted to their 
uh, a geopolitical uh, situation. But again, I don't think we should put the Japanese on the spot yet. We're going to develop the capability. We're going to see if the Chinese keep going 7.5% every year. The way we used to do things isn't going to work anymore. And and just to finish on that, I, I think, and, and Bridges made this point very well, but it's not – it's going to be difficult to work through these challenges with the Japanese the next couple of years, but it's not impossible and it's going to become more necessary. That, that being said, we don't, we don't stop the production line of the F-35 in Fort Worth, Texas, because we're not sure we're going to, where we're going to base it yet. We develop a conventional capability for, to, to address an operational challenge that we face and, and work through those challenges later. And there's a whole range, including, you know, not just basing it in the theater, like I said, in Guam and Alaska, not permanently in Japan. But you could put a, a fire, just like the Army deploys fire teams now as part of its Pacific pathways on a temporary basis in Southeast Asia. You could do this as well uh, with with an Army pathways capability that's going to Malaysia and Thailand. So the capability is reticent in the region on a temporary basis for six out of 12 months in the year. Mm-hmm. Um, the other piece to this, just, just to finish – it's it's a cost-imposing strategy as well. The American way of war somehow in the last 25 years has become about defense. They have a new missile. We have to find a way to counter it. And by the way, we'll be happy to, to spend more than they're spending on their missile to do so. This is a way to develop offensive fires that make the Chinese think not every day that they can spend a dollar, every dollar they have on offensive, but they have to think more defensive as well. Uh, Walter first. and the- Hi, Walter Lohman, uh, director here of the Asian Study Center. Um Back on the basing issue, um, you talked almost completely about Japan, and then you mentioned briefly Southeast Asia. Um, as difficult as it is, Japan is actually the easy case, right? So can we get there with just Japan and Guam? Because I think you've got to, you've got to sort of imagine an entirely new world, maybe 10 years from now or longer, where you get Southeast Asian states that'd be willing to step up under very specific circumstances. I don't think you have that today in any any stretch of the imagination. So would Japan and Guam be enough, or is there something I'm missing on Southeast Asia where you think uh, there's cooperation possible? So it's a flexible return option, what Indo-Pacific Command calls. And, and given that it, we could have it in Guam and it could deploy on a C-17 or a C-130 you know, in a week's time, it could be the type of thing where – we don't have a permanent presence in, in the Philippines, you know, at Clark Air Force Base or in, in the northern Philippines anymore. When things were, were tense over the Scarborough Shoal in 2015-16, we negotiated with the Philippines the ability to put A-10s and other fighters there on a temporary basis as an option to reassure Manila and to signal China that Scarborough Shoal was 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 not a red line, but but something they shouldn't, you know, pursue and, and continue to pressure. So I, I think it, we reserve the option during times of tension to, to use this to deploy it when, when an ally or another partner sees it as something that would send the right signal to its own public and to the Chinese in, in most cases like we're talking about here, um, as well to use it and, and socialize it as part of an exercise. Um, it was the Japanese that were exercising with us at, at Rim of the Pacific exercise last summer. We, we jointly, the U.S. Army and the Ground Self-Defense Force, sank a ship together from the land. Um, Admiral Harris pushed to do that. So it's the type of thing that we could do in, in Japan or in the Philippines or elsewhere in the future if if that was part of an exercise program that, that those countries wanted to do. I think um, – I mean, I think you're, you're right, Walter, in, a, in an important point, which is that Japan is likely to be a hard line. I mean, I think, I think we're going to need to do some serious work, and given the growth of the PLA, the Japanese are going to have to do a lot more. And, I mean, I really want to commend their national defense planning guidelines, which are very, very well aligned with the – National defense strategy and, and the government of Japan has really solved issues with the populace there and kind of, you know, sort of giving them more of a strategic culture, strategic discussion. 
I think because of that, and I think we already see that, is that China's going to push into the soft area. I mean, India is obviously hard and, and aligning more with the United States. So, so a lot of the, the, the more uh, ambiguous relationships and the weaker states, uh, just in terms of total power and also you know, in certain contexts, the development level, uh, are, are, are south. So, you know, obviously from everybody's point of view, everybody being the United States and all those countries in the region, the optimal situation is a military posture where we demand as little from the, the local states as possible to help them defend themselves. And effectively, we would, we would defend them. So the question is going to be is where does the PLA go, right? So, so our, this is where the political and the military have to, have to be in, in constant um, uh, back and forth is what is going to be required. For instance, the United States, just, Secretary Pompeo commendably you know, affirmed the mutual defense treaty with the Philippines and made clear that that it, that it would apply to, uh, I, bet, I guess, vessels and aircraft South operating in the South China Sea, right? That's great. That's a that's a mutual defense treaty. So, you know, we take that seriously. The Philippines is crucial geography. We have a great long-term, well, we have a, a very good long-term relationship, ups and downs with Philippines, certainly great people-to-people relations. What is going to be required of the Philippines to defend the Philippines effectively in a way that's consistent with Amer- the level of cost and risk the American people are willing to bear is going to be dynamic and pre- based primarily upon how the, ch- the PLA evolves. I think, the P- you know, when you look at what's going on in South China Sea and the militarization of the features there, my guess is the PLA is thinking, yes, I mean, ultimately they want to just control the South China Sea and probably essentially make it a Chinese lake, but also they want to shadow the decision making in Manila and stuff to make it harder for the Americans to work with the Philippines and other states in the region to develop a credible uh, defensive posture. So I think it's going to, I think that things are, again, as I said, things are going to have to change to stay the same. And I know the Southeast Asian states for, for natural reasons are not always, some of them more than others are not always thrilled to have these discussions. And I don't think we should overdo it right now. But I do think we need to change the way we talk about things so these things aren't surprises when, if they come up in five or 10 years. The other thing I want to say is um, it's really important what level we're talking about. Fundamentally, what the United States strategy is, is defensive. It is oriented towards the basically the status quo. The Americans are saying, we need to have a military posture that prevents the PLA from being able to use military power as, in combination with things like economic leverage, information leverage, et cetera, to suborn other states in the region. So basically, our interest is in the political integrity and autonomy of regional states. Now, that might require, at the operational level, strike assets that are more offensive. But basically, we're not talking about regime change of the People's Republic. We all probably would wish for a non-communist government in Beijing, but that is not the strategic objective of the United States. The strategic objective of the United States is to is to ensure that China does not become regional hegemon. And the way to do that is by ensuring that the, the individual states in the region can coalesce to a degree sufficient, not CETO or whatever, coalesce to a degree sufficient to prevent that from happening. So I think when regional states think well, are the Americans going to do Iraq again? Are they going to do Kosovo? No. We're talking about defending the political integrity and the territorial autonomy, the territorial integrity and political autonomy of, of the regional states, even if that, so if the Americans ask for something that's more demanding operationally or in terms of access or basing, that needs to be put in the right context of what our overall strategic goal is. We'll work our way over. Caitlin? Um, Caitlin Campbell, Congressional Research Service. Uh, thank you. You guys made a very compelling case for deploying ground launch missiles to the theater. I'm wondering, aside from obstacles to getting there, are there any downsides in terms of uh, military capabilities or strategic balance? 
there's certainly cultural kind of challenges within the services to to, to get here and what the what the offsets are. Um, this is a mission for the Army and the Marine Corps. They've both been thinking about this. Finally, after years of kind of pushing them, um, you know, user pack and Marfor pack in Hawaii are, are eager to to consider it. But but at least internal to the department and the services, it, it is. You know, if we're going to invest in this future, this space, there's there's a trade-off internally with with other capabilities, sets, and, and platforms they want to invest in. That's not a regional downside, um, but but it's a cultural service one. Well, I would actually even sorry, but like I, I would actually even say that's not a good thing because the army is looking for oh, a clearer I, mission. Sure. So this gives the army in particular a future instead of, and the army's been been really great in the last couple of years under General Milley's leadership and Secretary Esper shifting towards focusing on great power, war fighting. They've gotten back in the air defense business, that kind of thing. Um, but this that gives this gives them an actual it's meaningful role. It's I think the only big downside is the political the regional political thing. Because, you know, again, the perfect situation would be if we could just fly a couple B twos and sink every Chinese ship, but you, we're not gonna be able to do that. So we have to that that I the political pressure on the local states, the regional states is I'm not even that worried about the Chinese because I don't think we should, and actually in Europe, you know, I don't think, what I do, we could, we would benefit probably from medium range, sort of shorter end of, 500, 5,500 kilometers is a long, I mean, that's a lot of territory. What I don't think we should do is kind of Pershing threes, as in a sense of systems that we would put in Europe that would range Moscow. What we should, what we should look at is systems that are longer than 500 kilometers that would be helpful in defeating a, a Russian invasion of the Baltics or Poland, including potentially implicating Russian territory, but not like the leadership is freaking out. Cause that doesn't, I mean, that happened in the eighties and like, it was pretty risky. I don't think we need to go there. I mean, whether it was a good idea then, I, we could debate the historical stuff and I think it worked out, but same here. Like we're not going to be deploying intermediate range systems that threaten the leadership in Beijing. I mean, so there's not really a stability issue that the Chinese can try to manipulate. No. I, I think just one more point. We've got to focus on the cruise missile side of this. You know, there is talk, oh, cruise and ballistic missiles, let's let's kind of there's there's advantages to both. I mean, the ballistic missile would be a new start uh program, um, you know, five to ten years, much more cost. Um, even though there's there's advantages because we could operate from further away, there's just more limited throw weight. You know, so I, I would at least for the time being Take the ballistic missile option off the table. I don't see the same utility and, and try to focus in terms of the Hill and the department and its energies on, on a cruise missile. And there's no stability issue there. The Russians were not, Soviets were, I don't think we're particularly worried about the ground launch cruise missile. They were worried about a fast flying ballistic missile. So I, I mean, Eric, I defer to Eric on that if he thinks that's, but I mean, on the other hand, the ballistic missile technology is pretty mature. Anyway, but. it is, but if we don't have the same mature conventional yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hot, hot lines. Uh, Mike, come. Thanks. Mark Buckham from the National War College. Uh, you talked about China's focus being on the United States. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion that, that Russia's focus is on China, which is why 10 years ago, perhaps, they, they came to the United States and said, hey, could we get out of this INF thing because they had a problem they couldn't deal with uh, to their east. Is there some way that the U.S. can leverage that uh, with Russia to, to maybe – get something that, that we want. Um, and then just quickly, nobody has yet has spoken about hypersonics whatsoever. It sounds like we're talking about legacy systems, mm-hmm. but uh, but we, we know that both Russia and China are exploring hypersonic capabilities within the range of, of the INF. Does the INF even, would it even apply to hypersonic systems? Or is that just sort of a free-for-all for it's everybody? It's got to be a ballistic recruit. Yeah, so I'll take the last part first, and Bridge yeah. can do the Russia piece, but 
this is something we were thinking about at Paycom as well. Given the opportunity of hypersonics, which have more lift and drag, you might be able to just continue to stay in the treaty and develop in kind of a future hypersonic system that doesn't, you know, is, is compliant necessarily with the system. Um, I still see that despite some of the good work that's going on is at least in numbers and, and capacity is 10 years away. Um, so again, this is sort of a near term, how to address the balance in the next five to 10 years, whereas the hypersonic piece and the advantages it provides is, is more in the 10 to 20 year time frame. Well, and I mean, I think, again, it's the incremental mindset. I mean, you're, you know, you know, this stuff, but like it's, Yes, please. Right. I mean, the, the issue with with hypersonics, you know, it's good to have cruise missiles. They're relatively inexpensive. They can deliver more payload you know, range. You can put a lot of them on. Um, hypersonics are great, but uh, and there are some who question this, but I mean, they're likely to be very expensive. Right. And so that's going to be limited inventory and you're still relying on a targeting solution. And, you know, if it's something that can be repaired or whatever. Right. So you you want as much as you can get. You might want hypersonics for, and again, I mean, I don't, you know, we're talking here in just open session kind of, so this would be getting into the specifics, but, but I think, I think hypersonics, you're probably in the, in the numbers that people are talking about, you're going to hold it for your, your kind of silver bullet targets. But, but what we're talking about here is Chinese don't just have silver bullets. They got like a whole bunch of like a bandolier or whatever, you know, and, and uh, you need, to, you need to look at the whole, the whole picture on Russia. I mean, this gets into the political stuff. I mean, you know, they've interfered in our election. They have used military force. They have threatened NATO. So we got serious beef. And I don't trust them. So I think we need to shore up our deterrent posture in the East. On the other hand, from a strategic perspective, are they just going to fork over Central Asia and the Russian Far East, the Chinese? Because, and, you know, are they going to kind of sort of kowtow to the Chinese? That's the question they're going to, and they're going to increasingly face. So, you know, longer term, our ideal should be to try to, maybe it's going to be a different leader or something like that. That may be hoping for too much, but you know, that we don't, we don't want to have, you know, it's Kissinger's old thing. You don't want to be alienated from both of them at the same time. It's better if they're alienated each other and they have a lot of friction that, that, that should be there. So, but I think that's, we're going to, you know, and then the arms control discussion on the INF on, on a different form of INF could be a little step in that direction. But I mean, I think a lot of that's going to be time, unfortunately. Hi, Colin Smith, uh, CNAS. Had a question. You, you focused a lot on Japan and touched a little bit on the periphery, but do you see where it could be an advantage in the future with, say, Vietnam, India, where those systems basing them there or them owning them themselves give added leverage in their own negotiations with China to protect themselves in addition to helping us maintain that freedom of movement there in the South China Sea? Uh, and then touch on Korea uh, as a alternative for basing there granted that's not focused on south china sea but still then goes to the offensive counter to hey we've we've told you to knock it off now we're we're, we're building more of a a capability to strike into um china if we had to not that we would necessarily want that as a first strike so your colleague our colleague eli ratner has written about the potential for a diplomatic solution in the South China Sea by the deployment of these types of capabilities to the Philippines or Vietnam. That That's, to, to again, offset the, the the South China Sea happenings of the last five years in, in militarization. That is kind of a medium-term option that we should consider. These systems, in terms of deployment, are, are somewhat exquisite still for the Vietnamese. We have yet to sell them now that it's been, it'll be three years next month since we lifted the lethal arms embargo. You have yet to sell them radars or anything in that space. Um, 
as well, you can't really fire these kind of long-range systems without the ability to target them with, with other somewhat exquisite systems. Um, and so there, there's certainly a utility there. Um, it's probably more the U.S. operating these systems and, and kind of opening the door diplomatically with Vietnam as their threat perception changes. Um, in terms of Korea, given the that experience and given kind of the focus on the North, I don't think the Koreans are looking to sign up to a, a China game at this point um, when we generally can get the same range from Japan. Uh, you can fly a jet from Iwakuni to North Korea in 20 minutes. Um, it's much closer than we realize. Um, so to me, the Korean Peninsula is politically sort of a, a bridge too far right now. Um, I don't know if you disagree. No, I totally – and I don't think we want to threaten Beijing with these systems. These are about conventional defense, not about not about kind of upping the strategic brinksmanship game. It's about plugging holes in our and, and maintaining our conventional deterrent. I would say, you know – I think our policy basically should is should be that we are empowering other states in the region to defend themselves. I think Eric brings up a lot of great issues about targeting and so forth. So are these the systems that you'd sell to the Vietnamese? Maybe not, but you'd sell them what whatever they whatever we can do to help them defend themselves. Same with the Indians. You know, so I'm, I mean, I don't. I, I think you know some of these CATSA restrictions that are that are penalizing these guys are incredibly self defeating. Mm-hmm. China's the priority, and these guys are our future partners. I mean. What are we doing? You know, we should be selling them whatever they want to buy and helping them, you know, and we're let bygones be guidons and they'll do the same because we got bigger, bigger problems now. So that's kind of my view. I think so. As I said, with the anti ship focus, I mean, sinking and holding at risk and being able to sink the PLA surface Navy, you know, with conventional capabilities, and this goes to the, the exquisite kind of hypersonics discussion. That's the priority in the near term. The, the, the cost-imposing piece is if we had a land attack capability in the future, and this slide goes to it, you could hold at risk, not Beijing necessarily, the internal of China, which we don't yet do right now. We, we only have B-2s that can really hold that area at risk. So the Chinese forgo missile defenses. They put a lot of this capability far inland, including the, the conventional ballistic missiles as well as other cyber and, and space infrastructure. If we could hold that at risk, you know, we would force them to think, again, more defensively. And, and invest in these kind of capabilities. And as I've written, kind of a dollar spent on the defense is a dollar not spent on the offense. Question over here? That was Sun Tzu. Maybe. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Very interesting discussion. I have two quick questions. The first one is about cost sharing and maybe to go back to Jeff's point about the military bases versus missiles. Is one cheaper than the other? just to have uh, missiles as opposed to military bases. And the other one you already touched about, the China-Russia relationship. I was wondering if you could say a little more about the points of friction or the dynamics of cooperation between them and security. Thank you. You can do China-Russia if you want. Yeah, I mean, um, so a a destroyer, like I talked about, an early book destroyer costs $2 billion or so. Um, It has 100 VLS tubes and... The strike group, you know, better or worse, has become this self-licking ice cream cone that exists to defend itself. Seventy percent of those VLS tubes are, are filled with defensive weapons. So for a $2 billion destroyer, you have maybe 30 Tomahawks, the land attack mission on board, and maybe some harpoons for, for an anti-surface mission. That's a pretty expensive platform for the number of, of pla- you know, munitions you can actually carry. And it, the same goes for a fighter or a bomber. Um, the platform is the expensive piece. The munition is, is what it's carrying. And, and that goes to the limited magazine depth question that we raised earlier. That's not to say there's not going to be cost associated with this, but a, but a high Mars kind of road mobile system, um, as the platform 
you know, in numbers would cost much less. And I've seen kind of the, the data breakout on this that was done for as an NDA requirement a couple of years ago. Uh, so in terms of the cost equation overall, I think this is on the more affordable side to generate individual fires than air and maritime strike. Yeah, well, I think that's the right way to think about it. And they can also be combined, right? I mean, that you, you basically complicate your point about this right. sometimes. Uh, Russia, China. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on it, but I, you know, stayed at the Holiday Inn Express or whatever. But, um, I, I think, um, you know, just anybody who looks at the map, you know, these are two major powers. The Chinese have been, um, I mean, even leaving aside any of the cultural history or whatever, China has an interest in establishing kind of a dominant, very kind of secure, ability to exploit sort of natural resources and markets in its immediate environs. That's essentially what it's trying to do. Like I, there's often like a false dichotomy that the Chinese, they don't want to conquer Asia. It's like, well, that's obvious, but they don't, they don't need to. I mean, look at what the United States did to Central America, right? If you're thinking about like, when I was reading a little something about the Spanish American war and, and uh, all the business interests in Cuba and, and the involvement in Mexico and the involvement, I mean, well, more than the involvement in Mexico. Um, I mean, basically a major power like this is going to want a very, very high degree of confidence and security in the markets. It's going to want to ensure that its preferences in sort of the regulatory norms and the laws and the kind of trading arrangements basically cater to it and its sort of preferences. And Russia is going to be totally subject to that. In Central Asia, Russia kind of had more of a relation. I mean, when it didn't have direct control, it's had a re- more of a hegemonial kind of relation vis-a-vis Central Asia over, over the long haul. And for the first time, in, I don't know, two or 300 years, basically China is now, um, and Belt and Road and these kinds of things are actually designed to establish Chinese kind of upper hand initially, kind of the softer side initially. And over time, you know, people get indebted or they become, you know, grateful or they see where the money's coming and there's political influence and so forth. And then that turns them towards, okay, what does Beijing want? You know, it's like this sort of, this is the kind of, and then of course they also, the Chinese have the military power ultimately to back it up as well. So if I'm Russia, you know, I'm thinking, I, I would think I would be thinking, how, how do I, I mean, the big question to them is they want to preserve their strategic autonomy. We know that, but there's, they don't have the ability to have a third way. You know, there's going to be like Huawei or there's going to be a Western 5G system. There's not going to be a, who's going to buy a Russian 5G system, right? So which way are they going to go? That's going to be, those are the kind of big, you know, and that's, I don't want to make that into too much of a, of a case itself, but these kind of decisions are going to replicate themselves over time. And I think Russia's going to, there, there, you know, it can try to insulate itself and be willing to live at a lower standard of living and international engagement and protect its autonomy. But I think it's, I think, you know, our interest is in basically in their staying out of the Chinese orbit and, and creating pressure and problems for the Chinese in the North where, where that limits their ability to, to use their, their power kind of uh, with confidence that their, that their sort of North is secure. Okay, maybe the last question here. Yeah, this may be a question best for, for Jeff. This talk has been about the Indo-Pacific, and we've talked about the Pacific a lot, but we haven't really talked about the Indo part. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what is the potential for India to play a role in this? Uh, would basing there give us that deep reach that uh, Eric talked about without necessarily being as threatening to Beijing? Wish I had a better answer for you, but we are not yet at the point where we're talking about basing much of anything in India. I think it's just a, a bit premature to have that discussion. Um, 
I certainly would 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 second everything Bridge said about India becoming a much closer strategic partner for a variety of reasons, but not least because of of common concerns about China's rise. Um, I think there's no doubt about that. And it was also, as a South Asia watcher, uh, gratifying to hear Bridge air some of his grievances with the Katzel legislation, which um, you know I, I also find problematic for many reasons. Uh, I think there are a lot of things we can do with India and are doing with India short of basing or the deployment of conventional weapons that have uh, significant consequences for the power balance in the region for U.S. force posture in the Indo-Pacific. Um, I think the trend there has been extremely positive over the long term. Uh, oftentimes we get caught up in short-term evaluations of the U.S.-India partnership and that can lead to some frustration here in Washington. But I think if you look at the scope of cooperation over a, even a medium-term horizon, certainly since the turn of the century, uh, that has been one of the most impactful changes to the regional power balance. And if you sort of extrapolate out farther down the road and how do things look mid-century, how much of a change will that have on the regional chessboard? I think there's few things that, that may be as decisive in the end as India's uh, gradual uh, but, but, but substantive move away from China and toward the U.S. Look, India has Brahmos. They certainly have seen the utility of, of, of systems like this. And the longer variants of, longer range variants of Brahmos, Russian Indian system, ironically, um, get into the intermediate range space. And, and it can be for an anti-ship mission and a land attack mission. Um, so much like the Japanese and the Australians whose defense white paper talked about land-based systems, the Indians see the utility of this and are investing in this future as well. And I think that's an important point. Yeah. And I think, I mean, just kind of broader point is like, we don't. We don't need to put American forces in India. Like we, India wants to have is self sufficient and defend itself. Awesome, perfect. Like division of labor. Like you know, we don't. We don't want to. I mean, that's the other thing. Is like we created alliances after the Second World War that were historically very unusual. I mean, you know, the academics. Some of the academics call them in some ways they more resemble like protectorates from a kind of military strategic point of view rather than traditional alliances. I think our, our relationship with India is going to hopefully move more and more into the category of a traditional alliance. In fact, in some ways, we may be closer to India now than the British and the French were in 1913. Mm -hmm. You know, they had an entente or whatever. But we don't want to, we don't, that's great that they want to do their own thing. That's the kind of relationship we want to encourage. Same with Vietnam. We got in their business pretty, in a pretty big way for a while. They wanted to do their own thing, at least running it the communist way. You know, now they're kind of evolving and they want to defend themselves. Perfect. Great. We're here to help. We're not here to boss you around. We're not here to be, you know, and, and, but then in some circumstances, that's not enough or we have historical differences. I mean, I think in, you know, our interest is to make Japan more and more normal over time. So, I mean, I think what the prime minister is doing there is really great, but it's a long road to hoe and they have a history and blah, blah, blah. And, and of course we, the, the regional states on their own are, are not strong enough and they're too fragmented and are likely to continue to be too fragmented to deal with China, China, which is enormous, centrally located, and a cohesive power. So, like, the Americans need to be involved, but we don't have to do everything in the way that we've kind of gotten used to in the last generation. 
And we shouldn't fight that India is a continental power. Yeah. You know, we've been trying to, and, and Evan Montgomery has done some great work on this at CSBA. Um, they're a continental power. We should embrace that. Yeah. Uh, we shouldn't be fighting and trying to make them this maritime Indian power, which they're never going to be and they're not going to invest in right. in that future. The best dilemma they can pose to the Chinese is along this border that, that India remains heavily focused on. Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Pleasure watching your both in action. <laughs> for, uh, for the audience, we do have uh, sandwiches outside. For lunch, uh, if 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 there's one takeaway, I, I think I'd like everybody to leave with. It's just um, there's some simplistic narrative out there in the media that you know the Trump administration withdrew from the INF treaty because it doesn't like treaties. And I think whether or not you agree with uh, Bridge and Eric, I think you have to acknowledge that there's a sophisticated and, in my opinion, fairly compelling logic to begin considering how withdrawal from this treaty can improve U.S. force posture in a, a, a changing dynamic environment that we have deemed to be the most important environment in U.S. foreign policy. So with that, sandwiches are outside. Thank you all for coming out and thank you again to the speakers. That's great. Well, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Thanks for coming. I didn't realize you snuck in there. Yeah, thanks for doing that. Yeah, yeah. That's good. I think we heritage did the INF panel right now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So was there one that was about to Yeah, we had one. Everybody endorsed the treaty.